Hey everyone, you're listening to the Embrace the Messy podcast with Shannon Schinkel. I'm a high school educator, challenge seeker, lifelong learner, and embracer of all things messy. I find inspiration from individuals who are passionate about learning and embracing change. Join me as I share my experiences and interview people who will inspire you to embrace the messy too. Let's go. Hey everyone, it's your host Shannon Schinkel. Welcome to the show. Today, I thought I would do something a little different. I want to spend some time talking with all of you about my absolutely favorite topic in education, assessment. Now, I'll be honest, I was a little hesitant to do a solo episode, but you know what? It is the Embrace the Messy podcast, so I'm going to embrace the messy and and just dive in. What brings me on here today started a while ago, and it's my, and maybe some of yours as well, increasing frustration about social media and how conversations begin with a great purpose, but then they're just so limited to space or the number of characters and so much is left out. You just can't really explain anything via a caption on Instagram or a Twitter X post. Specifically, what I'm narrowing my focus on is the chatter around standards-based grading. The two camps, for and against, pitch their tent on the social media, and I included, but it drives me crazy how, you know, one of my posts trying to explain standards-based grading can be totally taken out of context, or another person's post about their frustration about standards-based grading isn't exactly clear. It's just, it's too brief. It's too narrow of a place to talk about a really sophisticated and intricate process like standards-based grading. I thought that maybe I could get on here um, using this platform instead to dig into an explanation about standards-based grading and learning. And let me be clear. I am not about chastising anyone for any post they made on social media. I'm just acknowledging how simply too limiting it is for me to feel anything authentic, to respond authentically about what anyone posts, because I'm sure that if I did comment based on what I I believe they mean, it will bounce back with how that is definitely not what they meant. And I'm actually not sure why I just use the future tense here because I've done it in the past. I've gone down the rabbit hole with people trying to have a good-natured argument about assessment and it just becomes a headache for both parties. So with that said, what I can infer from some recent conversations on social media in addition to some conversations with members of my PLN and conversations with educators in my school and in my district and around the province, is that there's confusion about standards-based grading and learning. I have and still tout it as a game-changing practice for educators, and I know that is hyperbolic. So what I want to dig into is how standards-based grading alongside standards-based learning is, in my opinion, 
the best way to save educators from the impractical and inequitable nature of traditional grading and learning practices. And by traditional, you know, I'm talking about grading practices that involve using zeros and, you know, taking marks off for things that are late and averaging scores under task-specific categories and using points for punitive and persuasive reasons. I know you've heard me say this before, and that's what we're going to dig into. So, look, educators know what they know. If they have never been to a standards-based grading and learning workshop or had a hard conversation about traditional grading practices, how are they supposed to know that there are serious deficiencies in the latter and phenomenal advantages to the former. So I just want to be sure that you all know that this conversation with all of you comes from my professional development heart, that it's, again, it's not a reprimand for not being heart and soul open to assessment reform, but maybe, maybe it can be a way for some of my listeners to help, you know, nudge those folks who are, you know, not leaning in. Maybe they're just kind of standing still, watching it all go by, or even leaning away, pushing back to learn from someone who has a lot of experience in this area, okay? So assessing students should not be this anxiety-inducing labor intensive thing. If you're killing yourself assessing and constantly plunking data into a grade book or a grade machine, if you will, or if you feel like you are devoting more time to your computer than to your students, I'm here to tell you that something in your process needs tweaking. And that's okay. In fact, I actually think it's kind of awesome because realizing right now that there might be a hiccup in your process shows, first of all, that you're self-aware and want to learn how to do it better. Now, that's not to say that there aren't hard bits in this process. Um, Starting anything new is hard. But when you get through the hardest bits of standard-based grading and learning, and I'm going to show you what the hardest bits bits should be you shouldn't feel overwhelmed bogged down and burdened in fact you should feel like you can exhale standards-based grading and learning should open up your teaching world give you more time to do what you do best teach your kiddos and definitely not shackle you to your grade book so so let's let's dig in and i hope you'll join me for the ride here so A few months ago, I was sitting down with one of my colleagues and I was showing her a few of my proficiency scales that I had developed and how I use them. And as we delved further and further into it, she stopped me and said, what I'm seeing is, is that these proficiency scales are not just for you to assess with. You use them intentionally with your students. And I'm like, that's it. That's, that's the big umbrella here. The practice of standards-based grading and learning is about intentionally using the standards and the criteria we make with students, for students, for caregivers, and for us. 
there's more to it than just tracking proficiency of the standards in the gradebook. Now, in British Columbia, you've heard me mention before that if you've heard any one of my past episodes, we have a new reporting order in this province. The order has educators using four levels of proficiency rather than grades and percentages in grades K to nine. But there is more to it than just reporting out on four levels at report card time. If our grade books stay the same and we just replace a percentage with a word, we aren't seeing the potential of the proficiency scale. And I know that is what some folks are doing. Maybe you are even one of them. It is the intentional process behind standards-based grading and learning that you just maybe don't understand yet the deeper why, why we've moved to levels and how we can use these levels. And maybe that's why you don't understand how using four levels will change how kids view learning. And that's how it's touted and it will. But it's that standards-based grading learning root to the overall level or overall percentage or overall letter grade. It's the root. So let's begin with what is assessments purpose because we throw the word assessment around a lot. Now my brilliant and amazing friend Katie White taught me that assessment is information. It's information that guides our teaching and students learning. Students should receive information they can use and I should receive information that I can use. Assessment isn't just number crunching after a kid has handed something in. This is huge because if we view assessment just as levels, scores, and points in a gradebook, we are missing the purpose of assessment. How intentional it is supposed to be. What do we do with those numbers? Do we use all those numbers to guide what we teach next? Are students using those scores to improve their learning? Now, I know from experience that most of the time, not all, students tend to only care about trying to learn more if it means a higher overall grade, right? We've all seen it, right? Even, even with the most detailed and finessed rubrics, kids tend to look at the score and move on. They only care about, did it raise my overall grade? Yeah, great. I could do a corrections, but why would I? It's good enough. Did it lower my grade? Well, shit. Panic. How can I raise my grade? What can I redo? Okay. Standards based grading and learning aims to repair that toxic relationship students have with grading. If we just use the proficiency scale words or just eliminate percentages and letter grades and we don't intentionally change the route, the way we assess and teach, of course, it's going to appear like a band-aid solution. And then there's going to be pushback from educators. So let me explain how we can use and benefit from standards-based grading and learning, how we can take intentional steps with caregivers and students as our partners. Now, you've noticed that I, I, I'm not just saying the word standards-based grading. I've been saying standards-based grading and learning. That's because standards-based grading is the grading we do based on the standards. It's that point in time when we determine a proficiency level a student's at for a standard. Standards-based learning it's using the standards to guide our teaching and students learning. Both are dancing together. And that's what I'm talking about today. To be intentional and purposeful, we have to use both. 
So the first step is to look at the standard as a goal. Okay, looking at the standard is a goal. Doing the thing isn't a goal. The lab is not the goal. The essay is not the goal. The cookies is not the goal. Meeting the standard is the goal. Our curriculum is a set of standards. So teaching the curriculum in, in teaching is teaching guided by the standards. So your first step is to unpack and understand what the standards mean. Intentionally unpack each one. What does the standard mean? What should I be able to see and what should students be able to do? I think a great idea is to put really long or cumbersomely worded standards into simple sentence or phrase, right? That will help you get the big picture of the standards. And then when we actually communicate the standard to stakeholders, like caregivers, it's simplistic, right? Rather than overly wordy. Okay, so after you know what it means, how will you know students have met the standard? This is where we need to develop criteria for the standard. So we aren't designing rubrics or scales for tasks. We're developing criteria for standards. And the criteria we develop for those standards should be one, strength-based, and two, task agnostic. So why, why strength-based? Why should they be strength-based? Now criteria should always be strength-based. So students see each level on the proficiency scale as meeting a goal. If we design criteria that only refers to what is wrong with what a student did, it won't feel like a goal, right? If I put, for example, under level one, project is overly simplistic, lacking description, and full of grammatical errors, how is that a goal? Would you sit down with a student and say, okay, your goal is to please do a crappy job of your project, uh, make sure it's really vague and just don't worry about editing. We would never say that to a kid, right? It just sounds silly. It's like, I want you to imagine that there is, you know, one of those finish line ribbons that runners run through, but there's, there's one at each level on the proficiency scale. When they get to level one, they break through the ribbon and it's a celebration, right? And then when they get to level two, they break through another ribbon. We want learning to be a series of successes. We are trying to inflate, not deflate students' self-esteem. Now, if you don't understand how to write criteria using strength-based language, you can use AI technology like ChatGPT to support you. I've played around with writing criteria using deficit-based language and then plugged it into ChatGPT for help with a lot of his success. And remember, you are building criteria for standards, not tasks. Okay, so the criteria, needs to be strength-based. Okay, what about task agnostic? Okay, so the criteria is strength-based. 
but it also needs to be task agnostic or task neutral because we want this criteria to remain still for the duration of the course and over a series of learning opportunities. When criteria remain still, it becomes achievable. After one task, that same criteria is not going anywhere. Students see it as, I'm here now, and the next level is my goal. Because when criteria fluctuates from task to task, we're making these you know, task-specific rubrics, it's like, here's the rubric for the assignment, now we're moving on to the next assignment, oh, right, here's a whole new rubric, and there's no way to track students' progress of the standards that way. There's no way for students to actually see their progress. It's one and done. When the criteria is task agnostic, we also let go of students showing the learning just the way the teacher wants them to. They, they will actually show it in many different ways. This includes the student coming up with their own way. Right? We've heard a lot about that. So, so I'm just going to explain this again to make sure you get, you get it, okay? When criteria is task agnostic, the criteria is not tied to any specific task or assignment. It is designed to be broad and versatile. It's applicable across a range of tasks or projects. This allows us to be consistent with our evaluations, right? consistent with our assessment and then we're not overly influenced by you know the, the unique requirements of any particular assignment the goal is the standard the criteria then remains relevant right and meaningful regardless of the task and it promotes fairness and objectivity now in my opinion and I, I can only speak about how I used to assess, okay? When I was more of a traditional assessor, I was too tied to the assignments I wanted to do year after year. If all my students couldn't do my assignments in my way, they didn't meet the requirements for the course, you know, full stop. This was incredibly unfair to my students. I was in a bubble, I was the boss. And when I let go of that, you know what happened? I realized I had actually been shackled to these assignments and I was holding students back from showing me what they could do. And I was holding myself back from really immersing myself in variety, right? And I was limiting kids from being fully engaged in my course. When I removed these shackles and I gave kids options for meeting the same standard rather than only one option, I felt liberated. My job started to feel like an enormous exhale. Now, Shannon, you said students can come up with their own way to show learning. Students aren't teachers. How can they possibly come up with their own learning opportunities? Okay, there's a lot of talk about this over social media. Give kids the opportunity to show what they know and can do it in their own way. Okay, that sounds great. But again, what's missing in really generic comments like this is that it doesn't happen by magic. You can't just walk into a classroom and say, hey, here's the standard. What do you want to do? It is, you guessed it, a more intentional process. It's got to be intentional. Okay. First, you have to intentionally teach to that strength-based 
task agnostic criteria in the proficiency scale you created. Intentionally teach level one, intentionally teach level two, intentionally teach level three, and so on. This may be through just practicing. It may be, depending on your course, showing them exemplars and having students determine which is what level so they can visualize what each level is. This may be through collaborative learning to get each level right. It's when you intentionally teach to each level, you allow all students to rise to all levels. My lessons plans focus on making students understand the route to the standard before I even think of giving them a learning opportunity in which I'm going to assess and evaluate them. It's the part where I focus on how they are understanding the proficiency scale criteria. When they understand the criteria, they understand the goal. You can even bring them into the folds of making the criteria really granular right kids like because maybe you're you've built these this great strength-based task agnostic criteria but you need a little bit more refineness a little bit more specificity is refineness a word okay anyway moving on um but they can get really really granular right kids have amazing ideas about what criteria means and in kid-friendly language they are assets in standards-based grading and learning okay so that's a lot of information already. And this is a good time to press pause because I want to push pause. I want to look at an example of what I mean by intentionally constructing criteria and then intentionally teaching to criteria. Okay. And I'm going to yoke my strengths and go English eight. And I know not all my listeners, listeners are English teachers, but I think it's a good example exemplar to go by, okay? So, I am going to hone in on and use a cluster of grade A curricular competencies which form a standard called writing, okay? Remember when I said, you know, it's good to understand it and then put it in a very simplistic way? It's, students and caregivers understand what that is. It's, it's writing, okay? Now, when I unpacked the standards, I noticed that it wasn't just about delivering a product like an essay, a story, a poem, or a paragraph, right? I did a deep dive, but it was actually about the process of writing and design processes, right? To, to plan, to develop, and create engaging and meaningful text. That was, that was some of the actual language in the standard. So with the idea of planning, developing, and creating as a process, right? It's that, you know, I want them to be able to perhaps successfully make micro moves at level one, right? We call that emerging in BC. If it's all about making more moves after they make micro moves, they should also now be making small moves at level two, which we call developing. Okay, so again, this is all about process. So now I want them to be making micro, small, and moderate moves, right? At, which is level three proficient. And then finally, all those moves plus bold sweeping moves at level four, which is extending, okay? 
Then I go into detail as to what these moves look like, remembering that the language needs to work with different tasks, right? It has to be task agnostic. So here's what I went with. And just so you know, I know I'm reading this out and it might be hard to follow. You know, you could be running on a treadmill right now and you're trying hard to pay attention. I'm going to put a link in the show notes so you can actually take a look at this proficiency scale. So you can go back and take a real look, okay? So level one, right, is about drafting, editing, and revising a complete piece with a beginning, middle, and end that has straightforward language and is just starting to provide details to explain, describe, and or argue. Level two is about drafting, editing, and revising a complete piece with a beginning, middle, and end, straightforward language with some essential description and details that somewhat explain, describe, and or argue. Level three is about drafting, editing, and revising a complete piece with the beginning, middle, and end, a combination of simplistic and more complicated language with much description or details that sufficiently explain, describe, and or argue. Level four is about drafting, editing, and revising a complete piece with a beginning, middle, and end, more complicated language with many descriptions or details and explanations that are both sufficient and sophisticated in the way they explain, describe, and or argue. You can see how gross, right? Kind of reminds me like when you're rolling a snowball in the snow, you're building a snowman, right? At the starting point, it's just like you got a little bit. And then you're going to have a little bit more. And then you're really finessing it. And there's going to be even more, right? Each of the levels builds onto the next. So each level is like what I said before. It's like crossing that finish line, right? So if you've got students, like in, let's say you actually want to use this scale with students. And if you are an English teacher, by all means, please go for it. I'd love it. It's a huge compliment, right? If you want to use it. And I'd love your feedback. They use it and they, you know, Level one might be their goal, right? And for other kids, it might be level three is their goal, right? It's so flexible. But no matter where they're at, where they wind up, the next level is going to be the next goal, right? Okay? All right. So just a reminder, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can actually take a look at that. So the language works for a variety of pieces. It works for both technical and creative pieces. Okay, are you with me so far? I unpacked the standard. I created strength-based task agnostic criteria. By the way, if you can do this with another educator or two or five, it makes so much more sense to collaborate on this than work in a silo. Take it from me. I've been doing this in a silo for a ridiculous number of years. Now, I am going to plan my lessons around the criteria. See that has different? Standard is writing, that's the goal. I've created the criteria. In standards-based grading, the standard comes first, then the criteria, and then the teaching and learning. Okay, backwards design, okay? In English eight, okay, so if I'm gonna teach to it, I'm thinking about that level one. Okay, I wanna start, um, we're gonna do some creative writing. So we'll just practice writing and drafting several pieces. I'll do quick writes with them. Um, I usually write alongside them. Um, for level one, you know, we'll practice just changing words to make the piece sound better. We'll intentionally practice that together. 
for level two. You know, I'll get these grade eights to work in adjectives and adverbs to add clear description. I like to go up on the board and actually do my own quick writes and then I have them help me. I'm like, um, I picked these three words. Can you please help me create some adjectives? And then we talk about which ones are good adjectives to add, okay? For level four, maybe we're gonna get into, you know, some imagery. Let's look at some simple poetic devices right? Help me out with that. Let's find the first noun in what you've written. Can you make that into a poetic device? Do I care which poetic device? No, but let's just use it for description. Does that poetic device make, make sense, right? You know, if you're writing a very, you know, jovial or happy piece, do you want to talk about how the, ro the, the rose in the garden's lip is as red as blood? Or do you want it to be red like a like the red hue in a sunset you know we'll talk about that we'll talk about tone right for level four we'll do even more elaborate poetic devices for really sophisticated imagery we're going to practice this intentionally all this practice is without penalty Kids share and collaborate. I float and teach. Sometimes kids don't know what words to change. So I'll walk around with my highlighter and highlight a word for them to add an adjective to. If kids don't know what adjectives are, we'll brainstorm and make a list of adjectives, right? It's really helping me teach in the moment. And once kids have practiced all four levels, then I can give them an assignment. This whole process of teaching the criteria is ungraded practice. I'm still assessing because I'm using what the students do and I'm using what I see to guide my teaching. It might take a week, it might take two weeks, but I'm not recording where students are at on the proficiency scale yet. I might have an idea, but I'm not recording every single bloody thing every single day. I don't have to. I've got the assessment information that is most useful to me. I know what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. Now, for an assignment or a learning opportunity, I love to give kids a choice of prompts, right? That really helps with engagement. But here's the thing. If none of the prompts resonate with an individual, I'll just let them design their own, right? I remember having a student who was getting ready to write a paragraph. It was very personal. And uh, I soon learn that this kid you know, had some past trauma, personal life, anxiety. And I'm like, well, just because I suggested this topic doesn't mean he has to do this topic. What was the goal, right? It was about writing and making all these moves. So we brainstormed another topic. He loves video games. Boom. He wrote about video games, right? It wasn't about the kids using my topics. It's not a power trip. It was about him meeting the standard. And if he could design his own learning opportunity because he knew the goal, he knew that the expectation was the standard. And, and yeah, I did have a couple other students who overheard me talking to him and it was just like, can I change mine too? And I really encouraged them. I said, um, so there's a reason why, you know, this isn't a successful topic. Are any of the topics I gave you resonate with you? Yeah, I really like this one. I said, so I think you're okay with those ones, right? But if you str struggle, if you're having problems with that, let's have another conversation. And that's how I got over that, right? Because I sometimes get that question. You give an opportunity to one, you're going to have to give an opportunity for others. Oh, well, big whoop-de-woo, right? <laughs> you know, it's not chaos here, right? I want them writing. That's the point, right? So... This is why I'm able to generate alternative learning opportunities on the fly. And I, I know it's not always that speedy 
in other courses, but I know having built criteria in many for with teachers in many other courses that if you know the goal and you have that criteria, you can generate a different learning opportunity for individual students. Okay. So the proficiency scale criteria is is kind of like a unit plan. It form it forms me what about what I'm going to teach. It informs me what to teach. And because I'm observing and giving them feedback in real time, I get the class to stop during the writing process to share what they are struggling with and what they are proud of so they can collaboratively learn together. You know, they'll they'll learn together and be like, I need a better word for beautiful. Can you read this and point out two spots I should add more detail to? Does my opening sentence make sense? Right? And they're really they're working collaboratively. They're not in a silo. I think when we're doing everything in a silo, right? We're setting that example that the old learning is always done in a silo. And I think we really want to give them the opportunity to collaboratively learn. And the best part for me as an English teacher, you know, is usually, you know, this, this caricature of a teacher sitting at a desk with a four foot stack of marking. I know, you know, you talk to somebody, oh, well, you know, what do you teach? I teach English. Oh, a lot of marking. You know, I'm going to tell you. Walking around and working with students. And the fact that I have that criteria, I often know what level students are at before they even hand in their writing. Right? How many of you witness students doing the learning and the student then loses the assignment? What do we do, right? We usually have them rewrite it. And I've had to do that too. But if we are actually in tune with them working through the process and we're really aware, while not ideal, we can accurately report their proficiency skill level without the product using our professional judgment of observing the skill in action. It's cool. Now, when they hand in their learning, I get students to self-assess using the proficiency scale. And it's really important. And get them to explain why. They are then thinking about their learning, right? Metacognition. And they can do this because they understand the criteria. Why do they understand their criteria? Because you've intentionally, intentionally taught the criteria to them. There is this saying, Whoever is doing the work is doing the learning. And as an English teacher, if I'm going to be sitting with papers and spending 30 minutes each editing for the student, we sure become great editors, right? All the students have to do is make the changes we showed them to make. And they take less time to revise than it took for us to edit. Ask them questions instead. Highlight all the places students made errors and ask them to collaborate with others to figure out their mistakes then get them to revise their work in their own way, right? Okay, now we track the learning. After all that, now we're tracking the learning, right? After that, we have that learning opportunity. So let's say student A is at level two after their first learning opportunity because you've taught each level, the student's level is not just a summative assessment but also formative and that you know exactly what to reteach to get them to level three before they tackle the next learning opportunity for the same standard. For the student who is already proficient, they just get more practice, but in a different context, maybe using different content, right? It's not going to hurt them. In fact, let's say we have student B and they're at level four, right? They're at the highest level. The subsequent learning opportunity will show you if they can maintain that same level. 
because it's that most recent evidence of learning that's the most important. For the kids who can't even get to level one, I often get that question, what if students aren't even ready for level one? Well, I can generate extra levels as goals in order to extend the pathway to get them to level one. Remember, the criteria is standing still for students. They're gonna have their own goals. Now, after two learning opportunities, let's say the caregivers of students A and B want to know how they're doing. The student who is at level two for their first learning opportunity got to level three for the second. Woo the student who was level four got to level three for the second. What do you report? Where is each student at right now? Both are at level three. There's no averaging. Standards-based grading and learning honors the learner and their progress. See, we hear a lot about how it's about where a student begins and then where they're at now, but that's so confusing to educators because that seems to reiterate and shape this idea that each student has their own distinct proficiency scale for each standard, and that just sounds like a nightmare of time uh, for teachers and should and that that but you do want to do that if you have students with an intellectual disability who requires a replacement goal and i am not going to get into that that is a whole other podcast and that is really about the work that folks like um leanne young and and shelly moore does all right but what i really want to emphasize is there's still grade level criteria for all the students in your class but we honor the growth they've made we don't average the scores that's what's meant by that comment we just don't average we drop the old scores. When we reflect on all the steps I just shared with you, unpacking the standard, creating that task agnostic, strength-based criteria, coming up with the learning opportunity, and then assessing, we see that the most labor-intensive part should be the development of that task agnostic, strength-based criteria. That's what's most labor-intensive, right? So let me give you a scenario here after learning all of this. An educator inputs assignments into the gradebook and then determines what standards are aligned with that assignment and at what level, right? They put in the assignment and with a quick scan of the assignment, they determine that there is evidence somewhere in the assignment for standards 3, 7, 9, 12, and 15. They then spend time determining that standard three is a level two, level uh, standard seven is about a level three, and nine, 12, and 15 is a level one. They go through this process for every single student and every single assignment that crosses their desk. Now, I know you can probably hear a lilt in my voice because you can probably tell that I don't like this and you would be right, but I do wanna say this, and I know that there are educators out there doing this because this is their first step. This is what they know. So what's great about this method is that first, the educator is becoming increasingly aware of the standards and what they mean, right? They're also understanding what each of the four levels of a proficiency scale means with this practice, even if they haven't created their own proficiency scale for each standard, right? So there is there are some real positives, but this method, ridiculously labor intensive. But even more so, it's that all the assessing is being done in a silo. The standards and proficiency levels are being determined after the assignment is taken in. Students might get the assignment back with eight out of 14 on it, 
but their progress report shows a breakdown of that assignment based on standards. However, they don't know what each standard means and what it means to get to a level one, two, three, or four. Now, are they using standards-based grading? Yeah, sort of. But are they using standards-based learning? No. Right. Do you think that this process will result in the impact they want to see in their students? Will the students know where to grow and improve? Right? It's fine. But with intentionality, it could be better. It's that standards-based learning piece, right? Assessment isn't just what you put into your gradebook. Assessment can be what you do in real time. It doesn't have to be a number or a level. It can be sitting with a student and giving them feedback. It can be making observations of groups discussing a question. It can be making notes about tomorrow's lesson based on what you're hearing from students. This is qualitative data about used formatively. And more often, that quantitative data put into a grade machine. That's what assessment is. It isn't something you do to students. It's what you find out from students. And the entire process is intentional. I explain this to caregivers up front. I tell them that learning is a journey that takes time. There will be learning opportunities in which students are practicing a skill and others that will be evaluated. Both will guide my professional judgment in determining the proficiency level for your child, where they're at for each standard. And again, the most labor-intensive part of this process is developing that task agnostic, strength-based language. But you don't need to build any other rubrics. The scale guides your teaching. It helps you with your formative assessment. It helps you with reporting. When educators say they don't have time to do all this extra work, I think, and, and I could be wrong here, the bigger issue might be abandoning all those task-specific rubrics they already made and starting fresh with something new. And I get that. When one switches to standards-based grading and learning, there will be a mourning of old habits and routines. But I believe in you. You are a creative person. I know you are. And I know we all love designing meaningful learning opportunities. This is just a new adventure and doing things in a different order. And it's a new adventure that will mean so much to your students, so much to their caregivers, and eventually you. Imagine, imagine now walking into your class tomorrow and telling them that you are ditching your old gradebook, that you are more interested in them understanding what it is they are learning so that you are, so you are going to intentionally make the standards transparent to them. Imagine them when they realize that they need to do the best they can because of it they just need to do the best they can because if it takes them days or weeks to master a standard when they do is all that matters not how long it takes them to get there imagine how empowering it will be for students when you observe them self-assessing using the criteria or adding detail to your existing scale imagine them coming up with their own idea for how they can show their learning when I imagine all these things, I see a classroom of students who are enthusiastic about learning, 
who trust that their teacher won't penalize them with points, who don't skip or cheat as much because they aren't chasing grades, and students take risks through critically and creatively thinking because they know that if at first they don't succeed, they can try and try again. And students who feel empowered by their teachers who have offered them the responsibility of choosing their own way to show their learning. This is not a nearsighted point of view, folks. This is a wide angle, big picture. I've seen it happen, thinking. This is building equity. This is trauma-informed practice. And this is inclusive through standards-based grading. Intentional standards-based grading and learning. I'm honored to have produced this and all episodes of the Embrace the Messy podcast with Shannon Schinkle on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Clay Lake Tanae First Nation. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and share it with a colleague or friend. Doing so will help others find the podcast. Know someone who embraces the messy and would make a great guest on the pod? Email me at embracethemessypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.